Hey, everybody. Thank you, Joshua. Thanks for putting out this book. It's so beautiful looking. And I wanted to thank Elliot Anderson, who's the artist who made the cover. He's here today. Elliot, could you stand up or wave your hand? Yeah, there he is. So it's like many images of Kylie layered over and over and over again in some soft, complicated software program, and I'm just dazzled by. Stephanie, you had this perfectly. Okay, what do I have to do? I thought of reading this one poem, it's called City Games, that I wrote in the heyday of the new brutalism. I don't know why. But do you remember they all got together and watched the same movie, Akira Kurosawa's Dreams, and each wrote a poem about it? I wrote this one, as though Kylie Minogue were in, the, in that movie. <clears throat> Walk, winning in the walking run, any second now. I can't listen to this shit. Clouds of organza, peach-colored, part, and suddenly Kylie is yakking in Japanese, tortured by memories of once she was in a Yakuza. There are filaments of fire so bright you can't put your fingers on the screen. Copied a second screen, which, pixelated freely, you can punch your face in it, feel the fever, Kylie meets old lady who looks remarkably like up on Mount Fuji, USGI gives himself to old lady, saving the world for dreams. Only 19 when dreams was made, Kylie shows remarkably poised, remarkable poise and brief tunnel sequence. 90% of the game is 50% mental. Mother in jail, leaves Tot home alone. Survives on Fritos, Jelly, educational talk shows like Charlie Rose. Giants win and walking run, credits roll down. To walk in the sun and to have every man and to love only one. These are the dreams of an impossible princess. That was one of Kylie's big songs, Dreams. It all seemed to fit together for me very well. I borrowed her lyrics. I, wrote, I dedicated this to Dodie Bellamy. To have any man to but to love only one. To wake with the moon and sleep with the sun. These are the dreams of an impossible princess. Man and woman, boy and girl. They want to escape this world. So I'll go back and forth with uh, my book and read a few new poems that I've written. This is called Five Years In. To a war, a war that never ends. I heard telephones, opera house, favorite melodies. US $30 million an acre, they say, of liberating a solid gold mine and the sold trinkets of the aster ray slither up from the eagle's nest sold. Nemo, with your wet leather suit tugged, I kiss you, I want you to walk. There are two great factors that you can see underwater. See, after I, I finished writing about Kylie, I couldn't stop. She just has kept haunting me. Have you seen her video, All I See, featuring Mims? 
it's a, another attempt to crack the American market. So bring in Mims to do this rap version on top of Kylie's, you know, little delicate vocal. The, the guy who boasted, that's how hot he is. I'm borrowing Alastair McCartney's concept of asshole printing for identifying boy criminals. Once a boy is dead, he wrote, the specificity of his asshole leaves the world, and all I see is you. In the passageway, I squeezed past his enormous brim and into the porthole where lay waiting, like a snake crawling from the left edge of the page to the right, then bounding back. They love the way the charm hangs from chop that complements the ear, that complements the hand, so closed down the shop. When I was a boy, neighbors won the supermarket sweep. Down the wide, I don't even know if you all know what the supermarket sweep is, but you could be on TV and you'd win and you'd get to go to a supermarket and buy everything you could in like 10 minutes with all your family and relatives. When I was a boy, neighbors won the big supermarket sweep. Down the wide aisles of Billy Blake's, they poured big steaks, rump roasts, small dense items like cheese into the cart, cart after cart more kids than sense. This was the acme of glamour. No wonder I'm, this was the acme of glamour. No wonder I'm fat and my asshole when printed looks like a smiley face. The emoticon shop closed on my face. Five years in to a war without hands and the clock ticks on. That's how hot he is. When he came to my door in a sweat, bare chested, where he fingered, lingered fingering the glove box in the Dodge, where I said, this is where your 32-year-old ass hits the curb. This is called, I Lost Me to, to Meth. Anybody seen those posters? I Lost Me to Meth. <clears throat> I kept looking at them, but go, they're speaking to me. <laughs> kept seeing these posters of these hollow-eyed men on the subway, on the door of the bus, on the billboards high above the city streets. I lost me to meth. Male, shaky, hands spelling it out, tragic, clever. I was thinking of how I had lost myself to meth, which is maybe what they meant. And all my friends... I moved in on this perilous, lonesome feeling, but you aren't on meth, a little voice hissed in my ear. <laughs> You're fine, Kevin. If you have lost meth, it is to age. <laughs> to, the to the medications that make you smile. That gaunt, that gaunt man on the sign, they all of them tinted in sepia. For when you lose yourself to meth, you first lose your color. <laughs> you become a numb gnome in the tweaky village of the Castro. The rainbow flag, all stripes of one sepia. And that is how I lost being gay. To Raymond Pettibone, I tried explaining some of this. On the way home in the plane, it hit me. I had lost me to them. Them as a way of reading meth. It was in my head why this message seems so rad. <laughs> the paint, the color of wheat cocoa, and I lost me to them, Raymond. I have had this trouble since 11 or 14, scrambling to keep up with this one ball, black and white, a soccer ball, and me falling behind it 
onto my face in the first dirt of the 60s, where you go, I will follow. All others can go to ilostmeetameth.com, <laughs> where probably paid doctors can explain it better, but I will be on ilostmeetathem.com, a destination few will reach the ordinary way unless you're really tweaking balls. <clears throat> your fingers hitting every hot spot on the keyboard, and wow, all of a sudden you're on this site with dirt on your tongue. It is sort of the Danny Minogue of feelings. It's hard to describe, but Danny is Kylie's younger, more trashy sister, and everything Kylie does, Danny does in kind of a porno way. It is, the, it is sort of the Danny Minogue of feelings, a worthy girl turned into charity case. And my resentment of that man, whose cock seemed longer than he knew what to do with, and that day in the market at when Sean came on the palm door, with a satin ribbon pinned down his chest by three small couturiers giggling down to his white belt. It is your day to shine, Sean Penn, as seamstresses earn their keep by tugging at your ribbon, spelling out the words of bread, I lost me to meth, exclusively on ilostmeetameth.com. This one's called Skull with Jewels on it. I don't know if anybody's seen Kylie's new concert, but the, you know, the curtain goes up, she's on her back on the stage, and she and a, a platform, which is a giant skull, 30 feet high, lifts from the stage, and she's on top of the skull. In her new show, Kylie comes down to the stage, riding an elevated skull, huge skull, confronting the audience with its own death, a skull glittering with thousands of light bulbs. She's perched on the top in red, singing like a drug. We're baffled by what this means, how she could lounge on top of the skull's round dome and try to be sexy when she has just emerged from a three-year cancer battle. Is this her triumph over death? Death be not proud, etc. Meanwhile, that skull is grinning ear to ear, just like the $100 million skull Damien Hurst displays on the cover of Art Forum. Skull with jewels in it, you have undone me again. I move my fingertips along my scalp, poking for the jewels in my head. When I am no longer here, save my skull and put it in a condensary. This is called Cannot Exist. Storm clouds and white sky cannot exist. Was Hal David the best lyricist for Burt Bacharach? I think so, yes. <laughs> Even though every other song has the same theme, without your love, I'd just die. A chilling sort of belly flop into death. You hear it once, it's strong. 10 times, you get a little weary of that thanatopsis in a death-based culture. In Orono, a sun-melting prettiness ensured I cannot exist without dreaming of green men saying goodbye to Jackson McClough, to Robert Creeley. 191 miles of main highway to exit 191. We heard how Philip Whalen, Lee Hickman, Joe Brainerd lost their will to write or paint at a certain age when a certain mood hit them. Just stopped. Then years went by. Then in retrospect, the grave loomed 
back at them into life. You, Justin Catco, walking alone amid scattered elms, and then, no segue, you're up to your ass in open grave, headstone at above eye level. You're reading what they say about you. Rest in peace. Excuse my dust. On the whole, I'd rather be at Steve and Jennifer's house. That's how hot he is. I'm going to read my poem that I wrote. It's called American Idol. Now, you all know the show, but I was watching it when it first started. <laughs> and that's how long I've been writing this book. And the eerie thing is, it ends with this one song by ABBA. It's called The Winner Takes It All. And I wrote this like seven or eight years ago. What, do I, what happens like a few months ago, but Kylie and Danny get to have their first duet ever, and they decide to sing, The Winner Takes It All. It's like they're pre I predict what they're going to do. <laughs> so these names will be history to you. American Idol, if we've learned one thing from this competition, it's that song selection is key. If Nikki McKibben becomes our American Idol, we will have lost. She's raised the bar. I'm here with Ryan Seacrest in the red, and Brian Dunkelman in the red room where the boys and girls lounge around a red sofa with sleek red walls the color of blood. You're up next, buddy. Out of the mouth of a cannon, and if they asked me my prayer, it's to have my deaf parents hear me sing. But no one thinks to ask. I have to drag it up myself, like a one-man frogman raising the bar from the Titanic, from icy ocean floor, fish bobbing by, their big bulbous eyes near blind. We're 40,000 feet below the level, which once we didn't even think about. We were just there living ordinary lives, me in San Francisco grabbing the phone, you in Vancouver shelving a book, Bob and Chris reconciling, Dodie's mother in Hammond, the long ward of chemo patients visiting and playing cards, Casey in his first day of journalism school at Berkeley, we were just there. Vince Fecto's sculpture pieces all molded together. He spits on them to seal them then throws a few twigs and seeds, bright, tiny, finery filched by a magpie on McAllister Street. Bob Giard boards the bus in Milwaukee and never makes it to Chicago. His bravura prints frozen forever. In Durham, Tom Maine slides his hands down his thighs, exposing his mole. Upstate Hudson Valley, Joan, Retallick, can't think of what blouse to wear. Finally remembers John Cage advice. Pick one out at random. <laughs> My cousin, Sarah Jones, on the cover of Bitch Magazine. There's 12 people at once, a different world from the one whose dead-eyed dead fish inhabit. And now we're back to American Idol, as now way below the ocean slowly drops the jewel, the heart of the jewel, so this is like when Titanic was out. Okay, remember the jewel, the heart of the jewel comes down. The heart of the jewel, big gaudy sapphire necklace that fish eye curiously. 
not even thinking how deep it is here. And the titanic bar lost its gleam, corroded by salt, the decks of the ship flash backward to a time when there weren't 25 minutes of commercials to 35 minutes of show, when Stanley meowed for our answering machine. This is our cat, who uh, some treat in his powerful jaws like jaws. So when people would call, it'd be like, hello, this is Kevin. His black fur rippling with concentration, and then I can feel him on my lap. He was my big boy. He had nine lives, green eyes shining when he'd had some broccoli. Oh, my dear. He was only a cat, but oh, how we loved him, and how afterwards the breath left his body as the gods, they roll the dice. Their minds as cold as ice. Somewhere way down here, loses someone dear. This one's called Acronyms, and I wrote it for a friend, uh, Derek McCormick, a Canadian novelist who was having some boy trouble. And, I, and every line in it would have an acronym. I don't even remember what acronyms are, but that's the name of it. As ABBA, okay, ABBA, and they're all in alphabetical order. As ABBA reminds me forever and ever, you needn't have English to be absent. I've known AWOL Canadians, Kurds, Norsemen, Iraqis, almost a cabal of the indifferent, sharing identical speck of mutant rancid DNA, sir. On a date, his ETA is, oops, sorry, dude, I lost track of the time. And at home, he's got the emotional range of how from 2001. <laughs> My advice, put him in your Jeep, put the fucking top down, target the accelerator with your long-distance laser wand, then barrel his ass into the bonfire of the Legos with his tiresome obsession with the MILF. You better deposit him, though not in my backyard. You will find life more posh without his nasty little kink and no warrants outstanding under your radar. Must I remind you of Roy G. Biv, his scuba tank of painted insouciance, who covered the rainbow with his heels of shazam? One snafu after another on the road to Apollo, again, Bjorn and Benny had me sending up great clouds of SOS till I managed to shoot the fool down via SWAT team. And the truth is, I should have handed him a tip. A zip and a tip, dear. A tip and a zip. I wanted to read a little of, uh, um, I have this one poem in this book, and it's called, Is It All Over My Face? And uh, people, People, you know, they hear the title, they don't get it. But basically, <laughs> it's a, it, it was a kind of memory poem for the, uh, um, for the musician Arthur Russell. Uh, I wrote this poem, I thought it was my masterpiece. And the, um, you'll, you'll know when you're old, when biographers start asking you questions about people who you knew. This one guy called me up from England and goes, I understand you knew Arthur Russell in the 70s. I'm writing this 
scholarly biography of him, and I have read your poem, but I don't understand it. Did, are you saying you knew Arthur Russell? So I, he asked me all these questions that I had to write out into kind of a memoir. So I read a little of that first and then launch into the poem so you'll get the context. Well, it was the late 70s, and he, Arthur Russell, was a, um, I met him because he played the cello when Allen Ginsberg wrote poetry. I read his poetry in a crowd. Arthur Russell would be back there, like, improvising. And I was, like, had set my cap on Allen Ginsberg. And he was like, have you met Arthur Russell, my cellist? <laughs> I really, I had all this resentment. And any, you'll, you'll recognize that feeling of, you know, being put with somebody he, he didn't want to be put with. Anyhow, we got along, f okay. Uh, <laughs> And in this part where I pick up, we're at this one nightclub that he took me to. Uh, mostly, it was a very, it was the, it's called the Paradise Garage. You're, you're too young to have gone there, but uh, mostly we were dancing. It was a very mixed club filled with blacks, women's, Latin guys, Caribbean girls, a fair amount of disco queens and satin shorts and tiny tops. You could hear the music for real there. There was what seemed to be an hour-long mix of the Jackson 5 version of Forever Came Today. Why, Arthur is the one who told me what a mix is. You can see I wasn't very hip. The club played hundreds of tracks. I never knew what they were, but I remember he had a fondness for this one song by Norma Jean. Was that her name? And it was called Saturday. He liked Niall Rogers and Giorgio Moroder. And again, it was how bombastic and pretentious Moroder could be. And we both liked Four Seasons of Love and Once Upon a Time. And hey, those are these two like concept albums by Donna Summer. And we wondered what could Marauder do next to top that storied grandeur. At the same time, the music always threatened to turn into just pure sound, and maybe that's what Arthur liked. It wasn't that he was alienated from other people, not per se. He seemed to be enormously popular. At a coffee shop, we'd be eating, and our table would get filled one by one by guys he'd worked with or danced with. And I remember having to introduce myself once because he was too high to remember my name. <laughs> one of the fellows sitting two seats away from me was Lance Loud, my gay idol, previous to Allen Ginsberg. Lance Loud of the Mumps, whom I'd adored on the PBS show An American Family when I was 20 or so, frozen, transfixed to the TV. Lance Loud who'd had the balls to leave sunny Santa Barbara, his mom and dad, to pound the bell at the desk of the Chelsea Hotel, checking himself in. And while we sat there companionably together, I saw another guy's hand slipped into the back pocket of Arthur Russell's jeans, and I wondered who he was. Of the two of us, I was the more alienated in actuality, awash with envy and aggression, while he, Arthur, was merely alienated from his body. And, an interesting, and in an interesting way. That's how I see it now, having lived in <clears throat> California for 25 years, where these insights thrive like the avocados. <laughs> again and again, I kept running into the same problem, that I was based on Long Island, and also that I was a dud. Maybe he was screwed up erotically, but he was an adventurer living a creative life while I was cooped up in my rented house in Rocky Point studying Tennyson, Browning, George Eliot, and bringing guys home. But I wasn't an artist. Every time I emerged from the Midtown Tunnel into Manhattan, I would find that 
Arthur Russell had done some fantastic gig the night before, though he didn't seem to be famous exactly. Not a good fit. He was handsome, but oh, that complexion. I'm leaving out the part about he had like a really terrible complexion. Good looking guy, bad complexion. And I was so shallow that that's what it was all about. Once we went to the movies and argued about what we should see. Perhaps because he wasn't in it, Alan had advised against seeing the last waltz. Not worth our time, he told Arthur. One morning, we folded the daily news against the mailbox, propped open to the movie listings. We wound up seeing the original Grease, then a new movie. I can't remember if it was Lowe's State 1 or 2, near Times Square. The movie go goers who were on the line said the management had slotted what might have seemed like a turkey into a small theater. Then when it became an un unexpected hit, there were lines around the block. And it became a real challenge to get in to Greece, the movie. We tried to see it at noon and couldn't get tickets till 9 or 10 at night. In the meantime, we sort of had nothing to do. Kicked around here and there, looked at the lions of the public library, and as the hours wore on, I got the impression that Arthur was not enjoying our date much. In hindsight, I guess it was a little bit ludicrous dragging him to see Greece. Finally, to save the situation, I did what I'd done so many times before, acted all into him, and came on seductive, amped up the romance, hypnotized him into going back downtown, back to the building where Alan lived on East 12th Street. Arthur lived in this building too, though not perhaps in this very apartment the one he took me to. This was murky to me, and it was unsettling, as though I were not wanted in his actual dwelling place where he lived. And the biographer who was working this out realized, told me later that this room that I was in was Gregory Corso's apartment. Can you believe, imagine? This was a Spartan flat with only a few pieces in it, all of them white, cream, sand, or putty covered. The floorboards were bare, though an area rug covered the lintel between two rooms. It was hot in that flat, and the window opened only a crack. You could see streaks of pink and yellow across the blue of the sky, and the noise was fierce. This was what excited me about Manhattan, so different from San Francisco, where I had spent the previous summer, the summer Elvis died. In San Francisco, cars don't honk their horns. Arthur said it was the quality of the street noise that made different composers write as they did, that John Cage would have written very differently had he worked in San Francisco, that he'd have shown a Pauline Oliveros softness and breeziness if he had. I thought he was speaking of himself and that he had ridden this trajectory from the prairies of Willa Cather country or wherever, which must show up in his music somewhere vague misconceptions of Charles Ives. Then he'd gotten blissed out in San Francisco, and now New York was drilling syncopation into his head as it had Lorca or Stravinsky. Like a boy, I was always reaching out manually, and for me, the direct approach worked. So I had been pawing him all the way from Broadway and Times Square, one palm flat on his crotch when no one could see in what I hoped was a masterful or at any rate, a practiced way. The bright room had a bed, but we didn't lie down on it. In fact, we didn't even get close to it. We just skinned down our pants and stood by the window, jerked each other off by the window, my back bumping up against the painted wall, 
I blew him a little, cranked myself up, unsteady. His face was damp, rosy. In his hands, his cock seemed, in my hands, his cock seemed large, sturdier than I would have guessed, like a stick. I asked him if he was ready. He nodded. Asked if he had any lube. He shrugged. That made me think maybe this wasn't his place. But that was cool. The whole scene had something to it of the meeting between Brando and Maria Schneider in Bertolucci's steamy 1972 film Last Tango in Paris. It made it more exciting that this was the flat of someone else. And later in life, I could see occasions where a, a trick pad, if that's what this is, could come in handy. I reached around and bounced his ass in my hand, sluicing his dick. Or maybe when I asked about the lube, he thought I wanted to fuck him. And you could tell he wasn't going to go there. But he had a great <coughs> Ryan McGinley-style ass that felt luminous and insolent in my hand. At that point, I was going to shoot, and I told him so. Aim for the floor. <laughs> he whispered, you too, I said. I kept thinking, this is all I had wanted from Alan. But he had turned away from me. Too busy for mere me. 38, 8. And Judah said unto Onan, go in unto thy brother's wife and marry her, and raise up seed to thy brother. 38.9. And Onan knew, what that seed, knew that the seed should not be his, and it came to pass, when he went into, in, unto his brother's wife, that he spilled it on the ground, lest that he should give seed to his brother. The only thing I remember knowing about music that Arthur Russell didn't know already, was an anecdote about Cole Porter. Porter had been disused by some competitor for writing complicated lyrics, and Porter retorted, he could make out a hit out of something as banal as I love you, like that would be the name of the song. Stupid anecdote, possibly apocryphal, but Arthur Russell, who knew the song from its Coltrane rendition, said it just went to show you how lyrics might be might as well and should be reduced to basic English. And it was also great how Giorgio Moroder had written like a 45-minute song for Donna Summer, and it was called I Love You. I asked Ginsburg to sign a copy of the radical gay arts magazine, Gay Sunshine, that he had published some poems in. This issue was a souvenir of my trip to San Francisco the summer before, the summer Elvis died. And I had stopped into small press traffic and brought up this copy and a few older issues of this gay tabloid sex journal arts forum folded over like the Rolling Stone of that era, probably by the same antiquated factory machines. On the back of the issue was Ginsburg's poem, I Lay Love on My Knee. One of the little pieces he liked to write in the vein of Blake, were Blake an American chicken hawk? <laughs> I showed him a manuscript Across it, he scrawled, Allen Ginsberg did not write this book. I hope somebody did. On the rose-colored back of the gay paper, he scrawled his name, Big Florid, ah. And nearby it, in the tiniest hand, Arthur Russell wrote his. That's my souvenir. I remember our ropes of semen crossing on the floor of I don't know whose apartment. When I saw him on stage, his cello pressing his knees far apart, I anticipated that he'd be an easy lay. I didn't realize, not until later on, that he saw himself as basically straight, 
straight if weak and prone to stumbling. He hung out with gay men but walked apart, at least in the time I knew him. What he and I had wasn't very much, but it pushed a button in me, and always after that I preferred to avoid thinking about him, as one might dream of undoing a faux pas. I kept insisting to myself the pain of recollection denotes something. He wasn't the one that I wanted, but is that so horrible? That had, after all, been the theme of Greece. Olivia Newton-John, striding in that hot weather strapless cat suit, turning the tables on John Travolta because he was the one she wanted. I learned Arthur was dead only a few years back, and it hit me harder than it should have. I raised my hands and experimented, imagining my fingernails were clamshells, scraping my face raw. Above San Francisco, the clouds were bumping up against each other, and I had a flash that if I could look beyond these skies, maybe I could make him out. His averted gaze, his forearms, his dream wave. And then I wrote, and so this is my poem that I wrote, and it's called Is It All Over My Face? And that was like a song that he had. He was a, like a disco writer. And he had this one song that was like, Is it all over my face? You caught me love dancing. Is it all over my face? You caught me love dancing. <laughs> Spring 1978, clutching old copy of Gay Sunshine on Verso Allen Ginsberg's poem, I Lay Love on My Knee. I nursed love where he lay. I let love get away. I let love lie low. In Stony Brook, Long Island, where once Denise Levertoff nearly expired of an illicit passion in wartime. Spring, so difficult to keep Allen Ginsberg's rhythms out of my head, the numb, dumb beat that he compared to the stroke of a cock, its pulse when you're holding it up or out in front of you. His affect was strong, unruly. He was so used to getting what he wanted. Indeed, maybe it's a Buddhist trait, their, their accent on humility, some kind of bizarre cover-up for the emotional thing. He was away on business, always the two tails of his beige trench coat disappearing in the subway doors. So I always saw him like saying goodbye, bye. Is it all over my face? When I talk with you, I feel myself grow red, your wispy beard and heavy smell of cigarette smoke. With you, I feel the obviosity of Ginsberg's doggerel verse grow into baton-like accent and stricture like it is going to pound me to death. Is it all over my face? You caught me love dancing. Is it all over my face? You caught me love dancing. Everything returns again. Everything comes back. The return of the repressed. Both the laughter and the rain. She is living somewhere far away. I forgot to say that the favorite band of Arthur and Russell was the 60s group Left, Left Bank, who had a number of songs when I was a teenager. I remember them very well. I put them into, these, into, uh, into this poem. 
And I send this poem to give her options, ask me in my lonely way. Today the skies over our little park are green, grim, pink, streaked with black and white, like a cat, and nothing. Nothing can hold back the rain. I could see through the clouds to this place where Arthur Russell brings his hand around my cock, cello wet with tears, and now he's gone. I told my friends he was not the boy for me. Was I surprised? Yeah. Was I surprised? No, not at all. Desiree, you know how it hurts me. Heeding the warnings of Allen Ginsberg, the American Buddhist poet who predicted that their love could lead to untold suffering, he and Arthur Russell lived apart from the day they were married. His death from AIDS in April 1992 inspired some of my own most beautiful work. My own premature death in June 2004 marked a great loss to contemporary Buddhist art. Where do I run to? Is it real? 15 stitches across my face. One for every man that hurt me. Fifteen apparitions I have seen. The worst, a coat upon a coat hanger. Players and painted stage took all my love and not those things that they were emblems of. Is it all over? My face feels scarred. My teeth stretched across Botox and bandages in the silhouette he casts. The window of a moving train, moving faces, temporary hookup. He touched the other side of my face. Red maple, pepper bush, cranberry. I wanted to be that kind of 60s poem where the plants of a region are, are the totems of the poem. And those are like red maple, pepper bush, cranberry are the plants of the native plants of Long Island, where I met Arthur Russell. Red maple, pepper bush, cranberry, is it all over the internet? Series of short, sharp abdominal pains, is it common, lingua franca, the way my soul seeks to engulf you? Is it all over my face, the shame of belief, the way the ears of George Bush Jr. sprout from his head, for he fears the angel? Is it all over the world? Red maples of Xanadu, cranberry, the simple gift of Long Island, almost the way Arthur Russell, Lou Harrison played on it, Allen Ginsberg, all noble. Arthur Russell, Lou Harrison played on it till sunset, spring, 1978, and far away, fingerprints for Kylie, on cattails, still finds a way to haunt me, always and forever. <laughs> Thank you. I'll read uh, one more poem, and this was, uh, uh, Kylie's new song, Wow. You know this one? Wow, 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 wow. Okay. 
Well, I belong to like a group of Kylie fans all over the world. And when her songs come out, we analyze them lyrically, the way that we did when Sgt. Pepper came out or whatever. <laughs> and in this new song, Wow, it was like, sweet little Kylie was singing this thing. And it sounded like she was like, when I see you on the dance floor, I feel genital emotion. Well, we were flabbergasted, and there was two camps of people, one saying that she, that's what she was saying, the other were saying no. <laughs> this poem is called Genital Emotion. <laughs> and it's from my little sequel to Action Kylie called Wow, 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 Wow. Did she say genital emotion? Or the more logical, angelic motion? I have to go back by saying, when you saw the lyric sheet for the LP, she had printed Angelic Motion, but nobody listening to that song would hear that. It's obviously she's singing Gentle Motion. <laughs> the teletypes pound like jungle drums. Hell of commotion on the Kylie International Network. Oh, it almost sounded like genital something. Genital emotion. Like Frank O'Hara, I have behaved disgracefully. I've thrown up on Erica Jong. <laughs> I've fainted at readings. I confused two black poets with each other, been accused of not being able to distinguish black faces, tried to talk Dodie into posing nude with me a la John and Yoko for <laughs> Brains, Brains Magazine, made a, made a pass at David Johansson and Chris Johansson. <laughs> and Hanson, but, but I never actually spoke those words, genital, emotion. It is the bourne from which no traveler returns. There's a line there separating sheep from goats, men from boys, pumas from cougars. It's called genital emotion. You know it if you've got it. It is the most embarrassing thing that could happen outside of death. So wow, 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 wow. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Thanks so much to all three of our readers. Thank you all for coming. Uh, please feel free to help yourself. I think there's some more uh, booze to be, to be put out. If you could, sorry, what? Uh, there's more booze to be put out. There's a couple more books left. Uh, they're, they're almost gone, but uh, if people want to grab the last couple, they're available. And uh, try to stay dry, and thanks again. It's nice to see you. <laughs>